Hello and welcome to the Bibliophile Adventures. I almost said Labyrinth, but I remembered at the last second. Welcome to Bibliophile Adventures on the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Big thanks to Michael from Texas for letting me record on this amazing podcast series. Today I want to finally talk about the book, which really should have been the first book um, that I covered for this podcast. And that book is called The Songlines. It is by Bruce Chatwin. So it's pretty likely that you might have heard of Bruce Chatwin. And you probably know him as a travel writer. He was also a novelist and a journalist. He's most famous now, strangely, and uh, maybe poetically correctly for his notebooks. He used to carry around these French-made notebooks called moleskins. Um, and while he was still living, while he was still using them, they uh, stopped making them, the company that made the moleskins. And later, after Bruce Chatwin's death, um, the moleskin brand was revived as a kind of symbol of his lifestyle. You see these pictures of Chatwin going around the world with a backpack and a notebook and a kind of pair of worn out shoes and maybe looking romantically into the distance or looking right at you as the viewer. And he came to stand in, uh, in the marketing, in the public image, at least for a lifestyle of constant travel, of, um, I almost can't avoid using the word nomadic wandering through the world. Uh, nowadays we talk about digital nomads who don't have any fixed place to live, um, but they just book a hotel room or uh, rent a room using some online service or other and do their work on a laptop. And I guess the laptop is the kind of modern moleskin notebook. I don't have any moleskin notebooks. Um, in fact, I don't even have a copy of the Songlines by Bruce Chatwin anymore. I don't even have the book, although it keeps coming back to haunt me. And... Just as The Songlines isn't really a very scientific book about its supposed topic, it's not really a history of um, Australian, native Australian uh, culture and mythology and religion, and it's not really um, a historical novel about the people that appear in the book. I'd say it's more a book about... Bruce Chatwin. I'm going to use this uh, podcast episode not really to review the book, although I'll kind of, I hope I'll kind of hook a few people into finding out why this book is worth a look. It's actually pretty short and it's very readable. But this episode will, will be more about why I am talking about this book. Uh, so just to give some context, I came here to Germany with my family to live about 
five years ago. I'm Michael from Germany, by the way, not the other Michael. Um, never been to Texas, sadly. Who knows? We'll see if we can change that in future. I came to live in Germany uh, mainly for work, as a lot of people do right now, I guess for, for years now, um, because there was a good job, a nice stable job to um, put things on a good basis for the family. And also because I speak German, it seemed like an easy choice. And at that time, uh, going back almost a decade now, it seemed like the European Union, of course, was a good bet for a British guy to move around Europe and to live and work in different countries here. Um, and at one point I was then between jobs, I was looking for a job. And as anybody knows who's been in that situation, it can be tough. It can be tough on you uh, mentally, emotionally, can be a time when you have to uh, go into yourself and um, also a time when you have to really get strength and, and support from other people as well as from kind of deep within. And um, uh, one of the things that made a big impact, apart from a lot of people who really helped me at the time, of course, uh, my family and uh, a few friends. And um, in Germany, of course, you get a wonderful range of help from the state and from society, uh, which is by no means uh, insignificant. It certainly wasn't in my case, if nothing else, just giving me the feeling that I was being supported, that I could get help at all. I think that's really important, um, just not to feel alone. But another another cool thing that um, I guess is quite common here in Germany is there are these free libraries on the streets. They're literally just a box, a metal box, like an old kind of phone box um, or like a cabinet with a glass door that swings shut, you know, to protect the books. And people can just drop off a book. And I remember uh, seeing those things when I was a kid, I think, um, when I lived in different places around the world. In the tropics, um, this was a typical thing that you found in these expat communities. People would drop off probably some pretty awful you know, <laughs> well-thumbed uh, novels, um, typically, I guess, some pretty trashy novels. And you would bring one and you would take one. And in Germany, it's the same um, in a lot of towns, I guess. Uh, but one difference is many of these books are really very deep. Um, and it, it is really a country where books are respected um, books are actively promoted as um, like a symbol of culture and a symbol of learning, I guess. Even you could you could guess with the history of Germany, the terrible things that we've been through here. Um, I say we. Um, yeah. And I really mean it. You know, book, books deservedly have a special place in the modern German uh, culture. And, um, so the books that you find in these book boxes, they're often, um, new actually, it depends where you go, but 
if you know if there's a book publisher nearby or if people just buy a lot of books and put them there when they're finished you can find amazing things you can find um i found a lot of uh, science fiction books which i still do and it actually rekindled my interest in reading sci-fi books from when i was a kid teenager and um that's what got me reading sauce the rope um which was the first book that we uh, covered kind of together as a team effort <laughs> on this podcast. Um, that was one book that I found while looking for a job and made a, a big impression on me with this story of this kind of quest um, and a post-apocalyptic world where there had been a time of great prosperity and then a terrible war that had ended everything that was one book uh, that really um, struck a few things home to me. Um, and this was another book, The Songlines by Bruce Chatwin. It's very, very similar in some ways to Sauce the Rope. It is about nomads, or rather it's... That's the, top, that's the theme that's used to um, play the real tune. That's like the notes that he uses to play the tune. Um, it's really about restlessness. And Sauce the Rope is about restlessness too. It's about um, a kind of hero, let's say a hero, uh, who um, starts off as a master of all the weapons that are used in this primitive society, this nomadic society. It even uses the word nomads, actually, in the story um, to describe the hero. So they go... Um, the Nomads in Sauce the Rope in Battle Circle. That's one of the least bad books by uh, Piers Anthony, of course. Um, prolific writer of really um, trashy uh, science fiction and occasional uh, genius, but not, not that often. Um, Piers Anthony's Battle Circle is about so-called nomads. They travel from place to place. And the way that their society has been engineered to keep everybody um, out of trouble is that they get what they want by fighting one-on-one. -on -one. It's like this perfect um, game theory. And Sos the Rope is um, the odd one out, the, the loner, in a way, who wants more and builds up this empire, um, really starting from one person and then building up a tribe and a clan and then an empire. It's very much kind of an Old Testament thing as well. Um, and then he and the other nomads discover, of course, that this was what led to the apocalyptic collapse. So there's this strong feeling that, um, I guess it's a 60s thing. Sauce the Rope was a 60s book. Um, there was this feeling that it's people's greed and it's people's ambition that um, really screws us up and makes the world a mess. And I don't think that message has by any means gone away. That's another message that pops up in Chatwin, by the way. But it's not the main message. The main message in Chatwin um, is that people are restless. People never settle. People can't settle. And even when they try to or they pretend to, they never really do. Um so to kind of introduce that idea, I'm going to just explain who Chatwin was. 
he wasn't the child of the 60s per se. He was born in 1940 and he lived till 1989. Um, so he was kind of a great figure of the late 70s, 80s, I would say. Um, he was public. He was kind of a hero. He was kind of a celebrity. In those days, you could still be a celebrity and a kind of intellectual writer, I guess. Um, it makes me think of these uh, people like um, Salman Rushdie. It makes me think of like you two, <laughs> of like aging rockers in their leather jackets and their and their shades. Um, and I think that the image fits definitely. So he wrote um, a very small number of novels, actually a really small number. He only won a couple of prizes. Um, but he was very well known at the time. Maybe what's less well known is his career. Although actually his career is basically partly the topic of his books themselves. So he was kind of a, a middle class guy. Um, in England, in Britain, that means that you are certainly comfortable. Um, his dad was a lawyer, for example. So they had a comfortable life as such. Um, they never lived in poverty, but they lived through the war, the Second World War. Um, and obviously that made a big impression on him, um, traveling around to his various uh, relatives. I'm using the Wikipedia article about Bruce Chatwin here. But actually my main source and the main kind of... Um, the main like object of my obsession with Chatwin... I'm happy to call it that. It's actually a PhD thesis by someone called Jonathan Chatwin, who apparently is no relation, but he's also a travel writer. And maybe it's a kind of nominal determinism thing here. Uh, Jonathan Chatwin is a writer, I guess, based in China. His, his focus is China. Um, but he did his PhD about uh, on Chatwin. And Jonathan Chatwin, no relation, went um, to look at the private archives of Bruce Chatwin and he got permission to use them. And so he digs into a lot of uh, papers and also an unpublished work by Bruce Chatwin, um, an unpublished uh, book. Um, and as we'll see, this book was basically unpublishable, actually. It's, it's the type of book which is extremely unpopular. Um, but, uh, later it was to be published in a different form. So, um, yeah, Br Bruce Chatwin, um, kept his life very private or almost secretive in many ways. And he kind of hid behind his books. He kind of created a personal mythology for himself. He was kind of a, a caricature of himself. He created like the cartoon Bruce Chatwin or the legendary Bruce Chatwin. And um, certainly according to Jonathan Chatwin's thesis, this image was constantly projected. Like even the people who knew Bruce Chatwin personally, like right down to his wife, um, everybody who knew him, they basically said that he was always working on this image of himself um, and what's in his notebooks 
and what's in his published books or, and his unpublished book. Um, you have to take almost with a pinch of salt and filter through which parts are Chatwin and which parts are the, um, the public image. I think in all of this stuff, and I've read this thesis now every year, I think for the past few years, and I read it again and again, and I get more the feeling that he was really a child of his time, and he really kind of acted out or kind of projected a lot of the um, social um, chaos or kind of like madness that that's been around and just increased since those times, the 60s, earlier than the 60s, of course. Um, but he kind of lived and acted like a, a mirror of those things, really kind of living out uh, the zeitgeist, almost like a poet, almost like um, almost like a bard kind of um, uses art to show people, show a mirror, show to hold up a mirror to what's happening in society. Um, that was that was Chatwin, uh, and when his his private life came out that hardly anybody knew about, uh, this was even more clear. So um, his early career, and you can find this in the wiki article. It's quite good, uh, and maybe it was based on this PhD thesis. I would strongly suggest just get the PhD thesis. Uh, you can find it online. It's from um, the so the title of the thesis is uh, anywhere. Let me just get let me just get it back again to make sure it's I'm telling you the right name. It's called Anywhere Out of the World. It's from 2008. It's by Jonathan Michael Chatwin. There you go, another Michael. It's called Anywhere Out of the World: Restlessness in the Work of Bruce Chatwin, uh, University of Exeter. So you can easily find that online. Um, it's a PhD thesis. So it's not a great read. <laughs> it's not a novel. But um, if you just read the intro and you read a couple of the parts that I'll mention, you'll get a pretty good idea. So Chatwin had this middle-class life, and I will follow his life story, I think. He had this middle-class life, um, and among the favorite memories that he related was a stay with his grandparents because of the war. They had a curiosity cabinet, which is basically like a museum, a home museum. Um, today, I guess you would you would just call it your your den where you keep all your cool stuff, your collection. So hey, look, here is a very strong uh, theme in the whole uh, nerdy legion <laughs> uh, mythology too. Look. Um, Chatwin was fascinated by this piece of brontosaurus, a uh, piece of dinosaur skin, which of course is not is not really um, what it was. It was a piece of sloth. It was a piece of a giant sloth, um, which you could actually find. You could go and pick up uh, a long while ago in uh, Patagonia. It's a, it's an extinct uh, animal, a giant ground sloth or sloth. And um, 
this kind of haunted him with the idea that you could travel around the world and find these objects. So a little bit kind of Indiana Jones, uh, but not really, as we'll see. In fact, he was basically the opposite of Indiana Jones. He was British. <laughs> um, not to be too uh, prejudiced, but hey, look, he was he had a different style of doing things. Um, seemed to be a pretty bad student, and he never um, he never kind of got his career going. To be honest, he never really started his career. I want to say that he 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 never even really got started with his career, and maybe that was one thing that um, that made him go the path he did. I mean, I don't remember from the PhD thesis, but apparently in his biography, there is an official biography. It's by Nicholas Shakespeare. Um, basically, he had nice ideas that he liked, but he uh, he didn't get to. He didn't get to carry them out, so his parents said no. Um, instead, he had to try for a nice, comfortable, again, comfortable middle-class occupation. They basically um, put him into a job working for Sotheby's. Sotheby's is the big auction house in London. Um, I, I'm pretty sure I've walked past it a couple of times when I used to live there. And there you can find all the most uh, precious um, art objects and um, antiquities, historical stuff. Basically, Indiana Jones would hate this place and Chatwin hated it too. Um, all the stuff that's there belongs in a museum, not in somebody's house, right? And so um, Chatwin found uh, that he was very bad at working um, at working at Sotheby's, but he was very good at cataloging objects. Um, he was very good at telling stories and uh, spotting forgeries, apparently. Um, and he was very good at summarizing. He was very good at researching, summarizing what he learned. So that you can see there the, the basis of his whole real career, his actual career. Um, as a writer. But what he was doing with uh, forgeries, maybe separating fantasy and reality, right? Um, if anyone who's listening who is, is British or has lived there any number of years, I would say, you need to be there a while. The class system, the British class system, is very much um, real still today. And to survive that, you really need to separate fantasy and reality very, very successfully. And I don't think that most people do who live in that country, even today. Um, and I don't think that Chatwin did either. I don't think that he ever escaped from that. Chatwin worked in the art world for years, many years, um, as a young man. He went back to university to study archaeology, and he really hated it. <laughs> so it's 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 terrible. It's I gotta say right off, this is going to be a sad story. It just gets sadder and sadder. But what uh, what Chatwin did discover was that he was unsuited to academic life as well. He didn't um, didn't finish. 
He wanted to go to Oxford. Um, he knew that he was a cool guy. He was a genius. You know, he wanted to, um, he wanted to excel. Um, but he wasn't quite clearly wasn't quite sure how he was meant to do that. Um, he did archaeology and he did well, but then he got bored. Um, he was in Edinburgh at the university and he hated the weather there. Um, it's very cold and rainy, more so than in England even. But um, after that, Chatwin realized um, what he really needed to do was write books. And the book that he proposed to his publisher, uh, his first rejection, uh was called The Nomadic Alternative. And this is the book that was never published. It's still not, it's still never been published. Um, and this book basically says, it's an incredible thing. I've never seen it, of course. Um, I believe Jonathan Chatwin has. Uh, but apparently it is, um, a sort of internet rant before, um, the internet existed. I think Bruce Chatwin would um, would kind of own the internet if he was alive today, uh, because what he did was he did this ins insane amount of research um, on all possible topics related to nomads and travel, um, and brought together these topics themes um, in a fairly chaotic way. <laughs> um, uh, the themes of restlessness, the themes of travel, a bit about depression, I would say as well, uh, melancholy. There was a book, there still is a book called The Anatomy of Melancholy, which is basically a huge collection of quotations. It's like a blog, right, that somebody wrote about feeling sad. And it's a huge um, collection, like a case book of all these different people's thoughts about being sad like poetry and um, novels and this type of stuff. I guess there's probably um, medicine in there as well. Everything thrown in there. The author just spent his whole life on it, basically on that one book, uh, The Anatomy of Melancholy. And a lot of uh, writers read this book at some point in their lives because it's this legendary um, <laughs> it's this legendary work. I don't think anybody really reads it for pleasure, to be honest. Um, and what Chatwin did was write a kind of anatomy of traveling or restlessness. He, he called it, he actually published a book with that name in the end. So, but this was specifically about nomads because basically by chance, um, maybe it was because at the time this type of stuff was popular. This, um, interest in Eastern art, um, Chatwin got the chance to curate an exhibition about nomadic art of the A Asian steppes. So this is like the Silk Road, uh, Mongolia, places like this. Um, I remember as a kid, um, the television we watched uh, down in Malaysia, that kind of area, it was terrible television, but what they really had was great documentaries. <laughs> that was all that they had. <laughs> 
And one of them was about the Silk Road. I think it was this endless documentary. Nowadays, you'd get it on Netflix, I guess. And I guess it was a cheap one. And um, I, I assume it was like 100 episodes, probably felt like it. And they basically took you through the whole journey of like a silk caravan going from the east to the west and selling the silk and all of the things that you'd see along the way, um, all of the dangers that you'd meet um, and the different cultures. I guess it was kind of like a Chinese uh, cultural thing, right? Um, and this interest uh, is certainly was certainly out there at the time. And this uh, gig that Chatwin got, uh, cataloging, so his his job as a cataloger, I guess, made him like the perfect choice for this. He, um, instead of doing a normal catalog, he he basically started out the catalog with this huge rant about nomadism, being nomads, and he finally got to the point, I think, at the end um, of the essay, kind of mentioning the fact that there was this uh, style of art, you know, and it's very interesting and it's sort of related to this other topic, which I'm way more interested in. Um, so he was already clearly on his, um, he was on a roll. He was going, he was moving in this direction, but he never got to publish his actual book. Um, I think in a sense, he was kind of ahead of his time, way ahead of his time, basically, or way behind or a bit of both. So he went into journalism. Um, there was this sweet spot in the 70s, 80s, like the age of magazines. For those of you who are under like 30, um, there used to be these things called magazines. <laughs> if you imagine Instagram uh, combined with really, really long posts on Facebook, do you remember what Facebook is? Um, really long, let's say really long Twitter threads. Okay. And you can put, uh, Instagram pictures in between. And rather than the way it works right now, you could actually embed those Instagram pics in the, in the, in the tweets it would be cool, huh? And they used to print these things out and they called it magazines. They used to print it out on this thick paper and you would have a stack of those in your, in your, in your house. I know it seems impossible to believe now, but this was really popular back in the day. Um, and they had these very glossy pictures and that was basically what Bruce Chatwin was doing. He was, uh, effectively, he was writing really good, uh, magazine stories. Um, yeah, he would have owned Instagram, I guess he would have been like the, um, the king of Instagram. There you go. Uh, he went to Patagonia because it's the place where um, nobody lives. <laughs> of course, there's people who live there, um, have been for a long time, but it's kind of the last place where you can't be uh, interrupted, I guess, by global culture. Because also what happened around that time was the big push to market um, air travel and tourism. And for me, it kind of goes together with these glossy magazines and advertising. Um I feel like I spent like the whole 1980s basically in airports looking at this weird advertising. And um, so that that's where I associate Chatwin with this lifestyle as well. He, he got published with Patagonia 
um, and it established his style. It's basically, um, he chopped and pasted, uh, bits of real life into a kind of postmodern narrative, which is based on his actual visit, but not really. And again, I absolutely like modern internet, um, garbage, right? <laughs> um, but, um, he did it in an artistic way <laughs> and uh, in Patagonia basically um, made him into a famous author. Um, the book was a big hit and um, they called it travel writing. Um, he's kind of credited with reviving travel writing. I don't know. Was travel writing ever dead? I don't know. Um, but certainly it fits into that narrative of let's all go on planes everywhere in the world and find that last place where no one else has gone on a plane, right? <laughs> so remember, he hasn't, he hasn't written his actual book yet. He's kind of writing the books that people expect him to write in a sense. Um, his next two books, I'll, I'll skip over a lot of his books, but basically, um, he wrote a book about colonialism and the slave trade, which is pretty, um, a pretty harrowing book. Um, and he actually went to Benin to go and research that. Um, and again, the truth and the fantasy are mixed in together so closely. Um, but it's a book about obsessions as well. It's a book about, uh, restlessness. And the next book um, was about England, well, actually Wales. And that's kind of the point, like people living in Wales and being free of this Englishness, this kind of toxic Englishness um, and the class structures and things. Um, and mysteriously, it's about people who never move away from their, from their home and about how you can be um, happy staying in one place or can you. I'll leave this stuff to the end. Um, but basically at that time he was living as like a superstar, right? Uh, New York, London and Paris and, you know, fame and fortune. I don't think he was ever that, that massively rich, I guess, but people helped him out. Um, 1983, he has a career finally, and he decides to finally write. It's time to write his book. Um, it's time to write the nomadic alternative, but no, there's still no market for a giant collection of random quotes. There's a beautiful, uh, quote, of course, uh, about quotations. The perfect book would just be a collection of quotations. This book is his kind of perfect book, and it's it's like um, laying bare these notebooks that he legendarily carried around. So here we go. It's a book about Australia. Um, in the book, Bruce, a character called Bruce, who is kind of his, uh, Bruce's um, legendary personality. He goes to Australia. He wants to learn about the dreaming about the song lines, which are these um, myths and legends and also roads that go across Australia. 
And the Native American people uh, have a tradition of songs. You could call them songs or stories or poetries. I'm I'm not going to try and explain it. I'm not going to also claim to know about it because it's very controversial. Um, The idea that Bruce Chatwin actually got it right, what he wrote about, that he even understood what he wrote about. There are these um, legends, the creation legends about how the world came to be, the different ancestors, um, and I guess you could call them like the identities of the different groups of people, the different, I don't even want to say tribes, but the different communities have their own legend that makes them them. So their shared ancestor, their shared story, and their shared places, they these things all link together. I think I can say that much without being too badly wrong. So um, fictional Bruce goes off to find these song lines. So along the way, uh, fictional Bruce meets a u- the usual cast of characters who are in some way trying to escape from civilization or they are in some way trying to defend uh, these traditions. Um, Of course, this part is, this is the framework of the story is all real. This is all real that there are lots of people living in Australia because they wanted to get away to Australia. And there are lots of people trying to defend the traditional lifestyle of the Australian peoples. Um, For example, they had a a victory, a major victory uh, recently, finally, that they, um, the Australian government agreed to stop people climbing up Uluru, which was often called Ayers Rock. Um, It's the huge rock in the middle of Australia, the middle of the bush. Um, It's this incredible place and people used to walk all over it. Of course, it's really sacred. It's really holy to the people who've lived there for thousands of years. And um, it's pretty awful that people walk up and down. And I guess, you know, there's probably graffiti and litter and stuff. It's not great, right? Um, so this is one of the, um, I guess, in a sense, small victories that they've had. Because it should be it should be obvious that people don't, tourists don't climb all over the place, right? But um there's many other things that they would like to achieve as well, right? Um, so in this book, you find the stories of the people he meets. But then, um, and you can read uh, in the PhD thesis, and I really, really suggest taking a quick look at least, how um, Bruce Chatwin uses um, conversations that he had or people that he met in his books to make certain points. Um, but halfway through the book, suddenly there's a kind of breakdown of this normal, um, attempt at respectable literary, um, making a literary novel. And he just throws in a ton of, um, quotations that he's dug up and basically it's pretending to be notes from his notebook that he's been keeping. Um, but of course they're taken from his entire, um, life's work, which is this anatomy of restlessness. So he finally manages to get it into print. He finally, he's kind of like Vincent van Gogh, you know, or British English, Vincent van Gogh. He's like, um, he wants to tell the world this amazing message 
and uh, he's just been ignored for so long. <laughs> and finally, he finds the way to kind of slip it into his work without anybody noticing what he's doing. So you get this huge list, this compendium um, of quotations from other people, basically, that have struck him, that have been important to him. Um, Chatwin talked, I'm quoting from the PhD now, Chatwin talked admiringly of Walter Benjamin's assertion that the ideal book would be a book of quotations. And he was writing this book when he was ill. He was gravely ill. He'd had a kind of hidden life. He'd been living this rock star life, traveling all over the world. And he'd had a variety of encounters, uh, shall we say, liaisons with a lot of different people. Um, and he had contracted uh, HIV AIDS um, at some point. And during the writing of the song lines, that is when he was extremely ill. Um, he covered up the fact that he had HIV um, by saying he had this rare uh, fungal disease that he picked up in China or something uh, along those lines. So always this legendary figure showing off how exotic it was um, and what a world traveler he was. But really, he was he was dying of, of HIV, um, HIV AIDS. And yeah, I said that he ho he holds up a mirror to the society, right? He kind of kept it secret until it was a secret until after he died. And uh, people criticized him for doing that after he died, of course. Uh, people called him a coward for not coming forth and, and sharing just how terrible that disease is and how much people needed help back in the day. Uh, still do, I guess. But that was who he was. He um, he did live this kind of hidden life. Um, and for a British person, I guess it was pretty hard um, to make that public, you know. But the sickness kind of pushed him uh, to finally write the book. And the, the Bruce that you see in the song lines as well is more Brucey maybe than other Bruce's. Like the way that he talks to people is is very flat and honest and blunt, finally. Um, and yet it's also at the same time very mythological, the way that he becomes this kind of pure figure that's who's very self-deprecating. Uh, there's the famous part, uh, there's a famous moment when he shows off his notebook uh, to some, to a Russian who's living in uh, a Russian guy who's living in Australia. I pulled my, I pulled from my pocket a black oil-covered, all cloth-covered notebook. Its pages held in place with an elastic band. Nice notebook, he said. I used to get them in Paris, I said, but now they don't make them anymore. Paris, he repeated, raising an eyebrow as if he'd never heard anything so pretentious. And Nicholas Chatwin comment, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, Jonathan Chatwin comments, it's through this combination of the humanized yet idealized self with the insider figure of Arkady, that's the Russian guy, in conjunction with the other techniques. So um, his techniques of kind of showing that he's an outsider, but he's also this humble 
a guy who can kind of relate to people living on the outside, living on the outskirts of society. Um, because he's so well read, actually, because he's such a humanist. Through these techniques, Chatwin is able to convey his ideas of restlessness and the human species with greater ease and far more humanity than was achieved in the nomadic alternative. So in the song lines, he kind of ties his journeying, his wandering around the world to uh, finally um, to his big idea, his big thesis that he worked out when he was living in cold, rainy um, Britain. Uh, with his stuffy, um, his stuffy life, his stuffy society, and his dusty old uh, books and dusty old uh, antiques and things, he's managed to bring this dusty stuff to life. Finally, yeah. Where's another good one? He shows off what a what a kind of intellectual badass he is in this conversation described between Bruce and Conrad Lorenz. So this is the fictional conversation in the book. All war propaganda, I went on, proceeded on the assumption that you must degrade the enemy into something bestial, infidel, cancerous, and so on. Or alternatively, your fighters must transform themselves into surrogate beasts, in which case men become their legitimate prey. Lorenz tugged at his beard, gave me a searching look, and said, Ironically or not, I'll never know. What you have said is totally new. So he's showing off his... Um, he's kind of inserted himself as like a, a role-playing character to make all these points, kind of like a Socrates in a Plato dialogue or something like this. Um, it's an imaginary dialogue. And he, in this quote, you can kind of see the whole thesis. He's trying to figure out, are human beings good or bad? Um, because there was a, there was a, again, this isn't the thesis, this isn't the PhD. There was a controversy at the time as to whether human beings had evolved to be um, basically predators. Were they basically evil in human, in, in, in modern terms? Were they evil or good? Um because they'd found, apparently, um, archaeologists had found a, a human skull that looked like it had been, um, you know, attacked and killed. And maybe um, this is cannibalism at an early time in human uh, development, his prehistoric development. I mean, how you can possibly come up with these theories on the basis of one skull, I don't really know. I don't think it's very scientific. Um Equally, you can't come up with the theories of neo-Darwinism and say, like, everything is competition, everything is survival of the fittest, uh, just based on the fact that, yes, evolution happened, right? Um, and so I'll name drop a couple of people like uh, Stephen Jay Gould. I can't drop his name often enough uh, with his theory that a lot of evolution depends on random chance. Um, and things could have worked out in many, many different ways. And again, Lynn Margulis, um, she's a little harder to get into as a writer because um, she was just a hardcore um, a cellular biologist. But her theory that, uh, not only her theory, but the way that she popularized 
the idea that evolution is um, largely due to cooperation and not due purely to competition uh, due to mergers, the big parts of evolution are due to mergers of different organisms or organism types, like the way that the cell, um, like our human cells, are made up of very, very complex, uh, tiny, tiny machineries or even like civilizations happening on this micro level. Um, and if you look at complex cells, they are clearly made up of simpler cells they are clearly a merger between lots of different types of specialized cells all working together all helping each other um, there's an amazing movie called symbiotic uh, planet uh, which is uh, sadly really long and quite hard to watch but i think like if you just watch it a couple of times maybe i think it's no symbiotic earth uh, we can put this in the show notes of course um, get symbiotic earth um, because that shows very clearly how uh, Lynn Margulis's vision of evolution is an alternative to the um, symbiotic earth there you go uh, is it an alternative to this neo-Darwinist um, monoculture this idea that everything is competition everything is a fight everything is a battle for survival um, whereas actually life taken as a whole, I mean, it's mostly bacteria, right? It's actually mostly tiny stuff that's happening and that makes the earth, uh, habitable at all. Yeah. The movie is called symbiotic earth, how Lynn Margulis rocked the boat and started a scientific revolution, a film by John Feldman. It's, uh, they, it's put out by, but, um, not butterfly hummingbird uh, movies, hummingbird films, and um, these are just a couple of the views on evolution, on history that challenge um, these kind of, I would say, for want of a better word, imperialistic views of science, like science used to promote an ideology rather than just looking at the evidence, the huge amount of evidence, which also is, by the way, how Darwin made up his theory in the first place. He looked at a ton of evidence, uh, read the origin of species uh, by Darwin and see how far you get the, the piles and piles of um, evidence that he lists, the long chapters about pigeons, different kinds of pigeons, <laughs> Um, see how far you get through his argument. Um, I think he says in that book at one point, this book is one long argument and he was not kidding. It's one long argument. <laughs> um, so Chatwin wasn't uh, a genius in the sense that he said something new, but he was a genius in the fact that he collected all of this evidence. My goodness. Um, to put together his book that was never published. And then in a few lines in this um, perhaps now forgotten uh, travel book, right? It's like an airport book that you pick up because you're bored. Uh, it has a nice cover. It has an interesting cover. Um, and, in, and a weird title, the song lines. And you know that there's this guy, Bruce Chatwin. He was famous for a while. 
And he kind of was a bit of an airport person himself, you know, um, glamorous, maybe, um, seems interesting, seems kind of edgy, bit of a hipster. Maybe he has these fancy notebooks. Oh, cool. I'll buy one of these expensive notebooks. And you pick up this book and you start to wonder what the heck am I reading here? Uh, this meditation about like human nature and, um, is there a basic need to travel? Is there a basic need to stand up and walk around places on my own two feet? I would argue, yes, there is. Um, because if you try that, if you go walking around your neighborhood and you see a bunch of places uh, for yourself, uh, you will see the world differently. You will feel differently. Even like the last couple of weeks, I went running, kind of jogging around the neighborhood and I saw some places again I haven't seen for um, I guess months, but it feels like years, you know, and just seeing them in the different weather conditions and seeing these kind of back street places, like little uh, forgotten places uh, that you don't often see, just taking a different turning or going on the other side of the street and seeing these like, um, there's a trend, isn't there? There's an online trend called like forgotten places. Uh, and they love to go take pictures of abandoned buildings or like industrial stuff that you don't normally see and make it kind of arty, whatever, and do like black and white pictures or whatever filter. Who cares? But um, when you go and see them for yourself, I think that's really cool. Uh, so thank you, Bruce, for the reminder. I've got here... Um, Oh yeah, how does this fit in with collecting, right? So Bruce Chatwin was a, a collector um, in many ways. He owned a bunch of strange crap, um, despite being this so this kind of self-described nomad. I think what he discovered in some ways, I got my notes here finally. What he discovered, one way or another, nomadism is not about freedom versus routine. Right. In fact, in the book, he plays around with the words in this kind of way. Routine would imply that you have a route that you follow. Right. You need a routine. You need a route to have a journey. Um, and so you need it. It's part of freedom. Um, and you need to have uh, adventures. You need to take a risk um, and get lost. You need to get diverted you know, off of your route sometimes and be surprised. You need to experience this sadness that you have on a journey. Like you miss the places you've been or you kind of fail to get to the places where you thought you were going. You thought you were going. Um, because without these things, there isn't really a story. You can't have this mythological aspect to travel if there's no story if you don't have this personal um connection to places and you know there's this uh tragedy of modern travel where you don't really have a connection you go a lot of places but you don't really you're never really there i think you find that in his novels a lot um he kind of plays with this idea of tourism ironically very very uh, harshly very very 
dark, actually, the humor. Um, the collectors in his story are collecting these objects. It's kind of like a proxy for, for travel and for getting experiences. And to the point where they're almost kind of destroyed by the things that they own. You know, the, the classic stereotype, like, do I own my things or do they own me? Um, but I guess happily for us, <laughs> nerdy legion types, also some of his characters actually find redemption through their collections. You know, they don't have to smash their things. Some of them sell them off maybe. Um, and find happiness elsewhere, like in relationships and things. Um, but the, the collection itself is preserved, you know, and, and actually in one of his novels, I think the, the collector actually kind of sacrifices the collection to make sure it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, for example. So it's not that things themselves are a problem. It's our relationship with things. That's a real problem. This kind of museum way of looking at things or like, even worse, like the art collector, right? <laughs> the, the people who just buy and sell these things constantly. You know, we, we need to know the story behind things. That's, that's the real issue. What's the story behind things? Um, you can't have an encounter with, with stuff. You have an encounter with an object that has a story. You meet somebody through that thing, right? Man, these are good notes. So like, and consumerism, yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's terrifying because you don't, you can't have your own taste except with the permission of society. You can have taste, you can, you can enjoy stuff, but it has to be the right kind of stuff because we're going to tell you what's good stuff and bad stuff. Um, and especially when you're in this society, that's like post scarcity you're always living with this illusion that you need stuff. You need more stuff. Um, and it's scary uh, to feel like, hey, what do I actually need? Who's going to tell me what I need? Because we didn't evolve um, in a post-scarcity society. We evolved in very much a scarcity society, right? Where everyone in the tribe has to help each other to stay alive all the time. <laughs> And so we need this social construct to tell us like this stuff is good and this stuff is bad. It's going to kill you. Basically, this stuff is good for the tribe. And this is how you fit into the tribe. Um, and so there's a survival aspect, but it goes way beyond uh, neo-Darwinism. It goes into this um, aspect of here's what we need to survive together. Um, and at one point in the song lines, someone says, I think it's Arkady, Arkady, if humanity is going to survive, it'll be because we turn to this ascesis, you know, like self-denial, going on a pilgrimage, going on journeys. I wrote down here this bourgeois karma. <laughs> it sounds very intellectual and pretentious, but it basically is about like getting stuck in this cycle of envy and copying people. This is what I tried to bring out at the end of the Michael Moorcock novels, where he goes off into Dostoevsky-like territory. Um, the character of Oswald Bastable, the hero, meets his kind of anti-self, who's Dempsey, 
Captain Dempsey, uh, who also dropped an atomic bomb and who ends up fighting on behalf of the people that have been oppressed um, by these various empires of the East and the West and who ends up um, going and blowing up uh, the Steel Tsar, the last kind of dictator in the trilogy of dictatorships, uh, the last imperial uh, warlord uh, with the atomic bomb and sacrificing himself to kind of stop the madness. There's this mimesis which happens where you're kind of re repeating the routines and you're repeating the patterns again and again. Um, I think Moorcock wrote a book called The Rituals of Infinity as well, which was about this idea of repeating the same patterns, going on the same journeys again and again in order to make reality happen. Um, and there's a good way and there's a bad way of doing that. Um, and we always need to be getting out of our rut, getting out of our routine in order to really appreciate the things that repeat and the things that happen. And finally, I've got here a book from the 1960s. You do find some weird old stuff in the open bookshelf. This is a studies in anthropology, an anthropological method um, series. It's from, uh, I think it's from Harvard or something like that, Stanford. I, the authors anyway are uh, some top guys, some top uh, academics from McGill University. Uh, yeah, Stanford University. It's called Stress and Response in Fieldwork. And it's from 1969. So imagine. Uh, there's one essay which I really enjoyed uh, because basically this anthropologist is going out drinking a lot with uh, people in Kenya. I think it's Kenya. So there's these people called the Embu people in Kenya. 1963 to 1964. Yeah, one of the editors, one of the pri primary authors of this uh, study, Satish Sabawal, goes and um, meets people and learns about their lives in Kenya and has some very kind of intense um, conversations with one person in particular. It's all fictionalized, so it's much like what uh, Bruce Chatwin was doing. He was really kind of doing anthropology on himself, maybe, I guess you could say, because he also fictionalized a bunch of um, meetings with people. I'll read from the case studies, case one. It was about a month after deciding to focus on Kenny that I first met Njage. So Njage is um, a really interesting guy that he interviews a lot of times. May the 5th, I went to the beer party at Njage's cousin's homestead and stayed there for about an hour. One normally brought beer to these parties and shared it with others present. In this case, the host bought a panful of beer for me. I drank a little, and then Njage emptied the pan. Then I bought a half shilling worth, and he drank most of that as well. So um, these are fictionalized names, and it appears like there's a, a ritual where you buy the beer, which is already there. A little drunk now, he led the following conversation with me. He said that he deliberately absented himself from appointments with me because he didn't know why I wanted to ask all those questions. As an aside, he said that he would answer my questions if I would help him pay the bride wealth for a second wife, 
His present wife already had four children, and if he continued with her, he could have many more, maybe nine. So he wanted my help getting a second wife. I explained briefly that I didn't really have the resources. Njaga wanted me to drink beer, and two or three times he insisted on my drinking from the glass he had already used. I said that doctors thought this was unhygienic, but if he insisted, I would drink beer from his glass. There was a moment of tense expectation. They were a little startled when I did drink from his glass. Then he said that I did not need not fear him and could ask him anything. At one point, he laid his arm next to mine and said, If I kill you, will you then say that you are black or brown? When I replied that most people, when killed, didn't say anything, everyone laughed and I had to shake hands around the circle. Later, when I was leaving the group, he insisted on my staying and buying more beer for him. If I wished to talk to him later, seems pretty fair to me, actually. Saying that I'd run out of money and that I had to go and see other people I left, he was clearly unhappy about my departure. So it goes on and on like this, actually. He gets to know people. Um, there's a lot of preoccupation with this idea that he might get killed. Again, he asked what my parents would think if he killed me then. I said, don't worry, they'll never find out. Go ahead and kill me. This kind of banter continued for about 15 minutes. It was very dark. Um, during the months that followed, Jage became one of my steady, reliable informants in the neighborhood. He did not ever try to mislead me. This whole study is about what happens to these anthropologists when they kind of go um, and live in a very different culture to their own and how they cope or maybe they don't cope. Basically, the stress that it talks about, they basically lose it, you know, um, in those days in the 60s. Um, they wonder why they're doing what they're doing. Are they crazy? They wonder if they can handle it. Um, they miss their peanut butter and they miss, you know, they miss their friends and their traditions and so on. Um, and they end up learning more about themselves than maybe the culture they came to study. And um, the leaders gained assurance that I was not investigating in the sense that had dominated their previous experience. And as the evidence of my goodwill mounted, he seems like a cool guy, right? I mean, he drinks beer, he makes jokes, he laughs, and he, he relieves the tension, you know. They decided that I was worthy of their trust, but was I? The question can be answered in the affirmative, but only partially and tentatively. As far as I know, no one has yet used my data or analyses to harm the Embu or the peoples of Kenya generally. Once I publish my work, however, I have no control over who uses the information and to what purpose. So then he basically says, wait a minute, you know, people can use this information to exploit other people. There's a more serious charge confronting anthropologists, which we have yet to answer. With our eyes firmly set on professional advancement in North America, nearly all of us report our findings in professional journals addressed to other anthropologists in North America and Western Europe. I'm, I'm shortening this long. Again, people read it. So people read it in North America, the United States, um, and in Western Europe. But do the people who actually create this 
knowledge? Do they ever get to read it? Probably not. Information, I'm quoting again. Information is the ultimate source, support for power, unless we help the rich countries become more powerful in relation to poor countries, that the United States foundations and governmental agencies should contribute generously to this endeavor is understandable. Why the citizens of poor countries should be asked to submit to this new form of explo exploitation and source of domination is, is less clear. Inward focus, maybe. We need a... The next, the next essay in that collection is called Inward Focus. Maybe we need a little more inward focus. Um, we need to understand a little more clearly what we are doing here in Western Europe. And I would even wager um, in the United States, maybe we need a bit more inward focus. I will leave it there for tonight. Uh, it's time for dinner. So, uh, peace to all my listeners, both of you guys. <laughs> um, yeah, peace to you all. This is Michael from Germany signing off uh, on the Bibliophile Adventures. Sayonara. Ciao.